The series is called The Art of Being Unordinary. His name is uh, Frederick Vinson, died in 1953. He died with a mere $1,163 to his name. But we shouldn't just call him Frederick Vinson, we should call him Chief Justice Vinson, for that's what he was. Born in 1890 in this great state of Kentucky, he was an honors student, went to college, wanted to go into law school, and got into law school with top grades, got out early, actually opened his own law practice at the age of 21. Ooh, that's a smart kid. He served a short uh, stint in World War I, later to return to his law practice, then to be elected to the House of Representatives, representing the state of Kentucky to uh, Washington, D.C. He would marry, and he and his wife, Julie, would have two sons. He would be elected again and again. He'd lose some elections and win some, but then he'd be appointed uh, different branches of government in, in different uh, arenas of public service until just after World War II, uh, President Harry Truman would tap Vincent on the shoulder to become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He would write 77 opinions and 13 dissents. 77 opinions. 13 dissents, it's a lot of work. You probably know nothing of it. I mean, they don't, they don't really matter to you. Except for maybe one piece. Except for maybe one. He recognized that separate but equal doctrine for all races was a failure because at the foundation you couldn't have separate and still be equal. And so he took the cases that led up to what would eventually be called Brown versus the Board of Education decision, which, by the way, the Supreme Court voted unanimously in 1954 and approved. It made us a better union, a better nation, a better country. But Vincent did not vote in that particular case because he died suddenly in 1953 of a heart attack. Yet what he leaves behind is a, an, incredible, an incredible legacy. He makes us a better nation, a better people, a more perfect union. Now, to be sure, Chief Justice um, Vincent's decisions in life are lost in a stack of paperwork and are in a file cabinet somewhere not far from here. But you and I don't know those decisions for, by and large. And yet his life is still a great legacy. And this is what I want to say. If you get nothing else, you may not know, as he didn't know, what his legacy would be. Yet he profoundly affected the American experience even today. What I think is also interesting about it is when historians went back, because all we know about the judges are them in black robes, right? I mean, you know, I've never golfed with one. You know, it just doesn't happen. And yet what historians will tell us is that he was known for soothing tensions. Now, why would that be so important? Little known fact that in the 1950s, the Supreme Court was quite contentious. There were hard decisions to be made. And he had the ability to bring people together. And the gift that he gave to his family, particularly his sons, is the gift of being able to get along. What a great legacy. I want my children to read this story. Don't you? Yeah. Dad, she's breathing on me. Yeah. He looked at me. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
Our biblical story takes us to the book of Esther. And if you're walking in and this is uh, the first time you've heard this, we're in week four. So welcome to January 1, <laughs> the story of Esther. If you have a Bible, go with me to the book of Esther. Esther wonder, leaves a wonderful legacy of the grace of God, but God's provision, God's providence in the midst of it. Few will know a whole lot about Esther. We know her as a, the name of a book, but we don't know that much about her life and about, about what she brings to the table. But what it does, it profoundly affects not just her story, but, but the nation's story. Not just the nation's story, but God's story and his story of deliverance of all mankind. You see, Esther was born in Persia. Persia was an empire that spanned from North Africa all the way through Iraq, Iran, into Pakistan, all, uh, through Afghanistan, all the way to Pakistan, up to India. It was a humongous piece of property. Scholars tell us some 50 million people in a, in a time when there weren't that many people on the earth. It was, a, it was an empire of 50 million people. She's a former slave. She'd been taken there. Her ancestors had been taken there against their will and been into forced labor camps. They came out of that. She's living in the land, but she doesn't know her parents because she's an orphan. Her cousin Mordecai, who's a, a generation older than her, he will adopt her. So he's not only cousin to her, but he's also uh, like the father figure, protector for this young girl. They just want to get by in life, and they just want to go by unnoticed. Why? Because they are... They are Jews living in a very Persian land. They are outsiders and never will be insiders. Well, one day in that kingdom, the king dumps the queen, doesn't like what she does, dumps her, deposes of her, and then later goes looking for another queen. And with millions to choose from, wouldn't you know it, he chooses Esther. In a land where this was just next to impossible, you know, how could this one girl be noticed this much? Number two in the land is a guy by the name of Haman. Haman hates this cousin Mordecai, hates him. But the feelings are mutual. <laughs> Mordecai hates Haman, won't bow down, won't show him any respect. So Haman decides, I want to get rid of Mordecai, but while I'm at it, let me just get rid of all the Jews. Bunch of stinking Jews, get rid of them. So he asked the king, let's, let's, uh, Let's have a day out there, and let's get a day when we can just slaughter at will all the Jews. King goes, okay, you're number two, you know what you're talking about. He goes, they keep to themselves, they have their own food, their own customs. We think it's, it's bad blood to keep these people around. Let's get rid of them. We'll take their land and do what we want. So the king signs off on it, not realizing the impact. Not realizing his wife, the queen, is a Jew. Well, as the story goes, and we've, we've done this for... The last few weeks, Mordecai finds out he is desperate. He's in sackcloth. He can't stand it. He tells Esther, you've got to do something. She said, if I go to the king, he could kill me. I just, this may not go well. Mordecai says, look, we're going to die anyway. You might as well die trying. And so she goes to the king and, and says, king, I, I, you, you got to save my people. He goes, what are you talking about? She said, I'm Jewish. I come from the Hebrew line. We're going to all be slaughtered. He says, oh, you're right. He goes, who wrote this terrible thing? And she goes, that guy, Haman. Well, in the turn of events, she would invite him to a banquet. They would go through a series of things, and he would eventually become the enemy of the king. The king would get rid of Haman, kill Haman, and make Mordecai number two in the land. And, and all that brings us to chapters 8, 9, and 10, the very end of the book, because now Haman's dead. 
and, and the Lord is sovereign over all. He is, by sovereign, what we mean is he has the right to rule. He is ruling over all, and he's protecting his people, and it's by his providence. Not only does he rule, but he rules in such a way that all of the elements are arranged together for his glory. And God will accomplish his purposes, and God will even use evil in the midst of that to accomplish his purposes. Esther's not a perfect person, nor is Mordecai. No one in the story comes up, well, just absolutely pure. Nobody. But the story's still not over. Esther chapter 8. The same day, King Xerxes, maybe your translation says uh, Ahasuerus. There's different, Ahasuerus is like the title for Pharaoh or king. Sometimes he uses the word Xerxes. That's his actual name. He gives Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Why? Because he's dead. She, he can do that, so he does it. The enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came to the presence of the king, for Esther had now told her that they were related. Verse 2, the king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So you, you understand what's happening. There's a whole lot of property, a lot of money being exchanged right now. And Haman, who is very, very rich, very rich, now gets the entire estate. And, and Esther gets to manage this. She's going to hand it off to Mordecai. Mordecai is number two in the land. And here, I find this interesting, almost funny. The two outsiders are now the furthest inside to the country. Do you get this? They're the God-fearing people. Verse three, Esther again pleaded with the king and falling at his feet and she's weeping and she begs him, end this plan of Haman's, the Agagite. End the plan because this is all against the Jews. You gotta stop this, dear king. Here's the problem. Even though they've gotten rid of Haman, there's this, still this law out there. And the law says, we're going to kill the Jews on this particular day. It's designated as a day of purging of the Jews. So the, not only can the Persians kill the Jews, they can kill the Jews, and it's illegal for the Jews to defend themselves. But on top of that, when they kill the Jews, then they're going to take their property. And this has been building up, and it's, they're coming up to the day that's the designated day. You have to remember, too, that the land is diverse. It's a big piece of property. There are lots of tribes and villages. There are different languages and different dialects within the languages. So there's a lot to overcome, a lot of geography. So the king wants to please Esther, and he wants to do the right thing, but more importantly, he just wants to please the queen. And so he says, um, you and Mordecai figure this thing out. He goes, I, I, I'm not sure I'm up to this. Now, here's something you have to keep in mind. And it, it goes like this. When the king writes a law, it's called the law of the Medes and Persians. That means it cannot be changed. But there's a law behind that law. And it's the law that the king can do no wrong. <laughs> okay? The king can do no wrong. Why? Because he's the king. <laughs> if he wants more salt on his food, it's what the king, he gets more salt. If he wants more pepper, he wants more pepper. But you, you never say to the king, oh, what you did wasn't good. That, that was wrong. You don't do that. You're, you're done if you do that. So what's Mordecai going to do? He can't say, let's, let's undo that law, because if he does, he's essentially saying the king was wrong. So they write another law that says, oh, by the way, the king has another law. You're allowed to still kill the Jews on that particular day, but there's another law in place, and the Jews can kill you as well. So if you go to battle, they will kill you, 
and then they will take your property and then you're going to kill your spouse and your kids don't kill any animal on your property so think twice before you you uh even look at a jew <laughs> now there's a dynamic happening here too if you're persian think about it for a moment and you hear about this rule but you've got some friends who are jews you start looking at their property different like well someone's gonna kill them might as well be me because i need that property so then we've been friends a long time i know that we're friends but i still need to kill you because i need the property and someone's gonna kill you dude so think of the relationships that are happening you wonder what in the world the strain and the stress of this and then this new edict comes out that now says oh by the way the jews can pick up a sword too and they're nasty they know how to fight they've been slaves they know how to defend themselves and they will humiliate you along the way and then at the end they'll kill you and then they'll take your property so the best thing you could do is not even look at them on that particular day just avoid them keep your head down do your job that day so Mordecai writes that law but the other issue about that law is this that law is a good law but if they don't know about it it doesn't matter so now he has to get his secretaries together and translators the dictation people and we got to make sure that everybody translates this exactly right we make sure that we cross check everything to make sure these guys got it right so when they go out to the provinces there's 127 provinces when you get out to those provinces they make sure they understand the jews will defend themselves so don't mess with them I find it interesting too they actually put these guys who go to these 127 promises uh, provinces they put them on steeds it says in the text um, historically what we've learned is this these horses were bred for speed this is the original we talk in the United States about inventing the Pony Express this was the original Pony Express isn't that cool and so these guys take off at lightning speed with these horses and they're doing it because if they don't get there in time, there's going to be a bloodbath that we don't really want. So the, the, the runners take off with all the translated goods. Then the decree goes out. And that day, everybody has like a cold war. Don't look at the Jews. The Jews won't look at you. We'll just get through this day, that particular day, verse 11. King Zedek granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble. And mark that word assemble. It's bad translation and protect themselves to destroy kill and annihilate i love it if you ever wondered i wonder what that means well the next word will tell you destroy i wonder what that means kill oh yeah that's pretty mean and annihilate i think i'm getting the idea of this now armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and their children and to plunder the property of their enemies back up to verse 11 again the jews had the right to assemble actually that word there is the word for militia it isn't just gather it's not like let's get together and have a meeting no we're getting together to sharpen the swords yeah and so it, this is actually mounting up the crew and if you ever wonder what the context was you just keep reading the verse they have the right to assemble this is not a sing-along why because they're getting together to assemble and protect themselves oh, oh my this is like the guns and ammo show at the armory that's what this is so the NIV doesn't really do favor to us. But the, by the way, too, the word is also, when it talks about this, this Hebrew word for assemble, uh, which is actually militia, is also a word that's used not only for warfare, it's also used for worship, which ought to tell you something about the warfare of worship. And they say this, the attack at you and he will kill you. But on the way to killing you, 
He's going to kill your wife and your kids, and then he's going to take your property, and then he's going to take your herds, and, and so you leave God's people alone. And that word went out in a flash. Mordecai emerged that day as the word went out. He put on the royal garments, went out and prayed through town because he's the big guy now. He's number two. And the Jews loved him. And the Persians who were smart loved him too. And that day there was rejoicing everywhere. The momentum now shifts. The momentum is like totally different. There's feasting, there's relief, there's singing and dancing in the streets. You ever been around in a game? You ever watched a game when a game changes its momentum? Yeah. Occasionally we'll have the TV on on a Saturday. I'll be walking through. We're cleaning the house. or doing things. And there's a, a basketball game. They're ahead by 20. I walk back through. They're behind by four. How did that happen? I was gone for four minutes. And the momentum shifts. And in basketball, it can happen fast, can't it? Wow. So you can't measure that momentum shift, but you know it's there and you know it's real. And what happened on that day, the, the, when the word went out, all of Persia knew, and now there's this momentum shift, and now people who've been looking at spying out the land are now looking just to protect their own and to not offend any Jews, not breathe on them with bad breath, not even look them in the eye, just stay clear of them because we, we don't want any hostility. And that day went by with comparatively less amount of bloodshed. People did die that day. There were skirmishes, but not nearly like what there could have been. Scholars tell us that there could have been a horrible bloodbath, and there, there was some who stood up to the Jews, and the Jews killed them, but for the most part, it was a quiet day. But there were Persians who died, and the scriptures, uh, scriptures tell us that Persians did die, but notably, they named 10 of them that die, and the 10 they name are the sons of Haman. Isn't that interesting? And the reason for that, I believe, is this. If anyone were to hold a grudge, it'd be the kids, Right? They're going to protect that. And you went after my dad, I'm going to come after you. So you get rid of the threat by getting rid of the sons. It's a horrible way to live, but it was the best way. It was the ounce of prevention that kept the disaster from happening later. Chapter 9 now, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th day. Now, why did they do that? Because... They wanted to make sure everybody knew and that this thing was over. So they extended it another day that the Jews could defend themselves. So you're going to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month of their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. This is the day we're supposed to die and we're feasting. It's a great day. So he wrote them to observe the days of feasting and joy and giving a presence of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Get this, this was supposed to be a bad day. This is a day we we're all saying goodbye to each other. And God has intervened and a new edict has come. We can defend ourselves and now it's nothing but a big, humongous celebration. The Jews are eating, they're celebrating, they're they're, you can just imagine they're, they're hugging each other and saying, it's so good to see you vertical. You know, you, it's good to see you with dignity. And they called this, they called this, even today they celebrate, the Jews celebrate this, serious Jews celebrate this. It's called Purim. It's called the Feast of Purim. And Purim 
is the word for chance or lots or like we would call it dice. And the idea of that is this. We had no chance of making it. And yet we made it. We had no chance of surviving. It's like throwing of the dice. And yet we made it. And so the idea of that is this. The Lord God is sovereign over all, even when you don't have a chance. Isn't that cool? And in some ways, when you think about it, when I read this text, and they're celebrating with feasting and joy, I think they were singing and dancing in the streets, and they were giving gifts, and they're caring for the poor. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like an American Christmas, doesn't it? And in some ways, it is their version of that. Because of, because of Esther's heroic appeal to the king, God's people are saved. For hundreds of, of years, they're saved, and from hundreds of miles in span of time and space, they're saved. And that preserves the line that will eventually become the line for Joseph and Mary to give birth to this baby Jesus. So why does God even preserve a book like this? Why do we even need to know this story? Why is this so important? Well, just like Chief Justice Vincent, who left his family $1,163, he didn't leave him a lot of money. What he left them was a humongous legacy. God leaves to us a humongous legacy and a great lesson from the life of Esther. The story goes like this. God loves you so very much, and he's been demonstrating that love all throughout the Old Testament story. He plans for this salvation from our sin, but that salvation is going to come through a Jewish line, and that would become the name that we would know as Jesus. But Satan would love to extinguish that line, and if he could extinguish that line, he could extinguish the salvation plan that God has. So what does Satan want to do? He wants to get rid of Jews. Just that simple. Even still, God defends the plan. And ultimately, when Jesus comes, Satan realizes, I am foiled, I am done. He offers to us forgiveness of our sins. He offers to us not only forgiveness of our sins, but then the lifting of our guilt, the weight of that burden of sin. He prepares a home for us in heaven. Heaven, John 14. All he asks is that we trust him. All he asks is that we just come to him in personal faith. And then when we follow in faith, it's a wonderful Christian life. It's a wonderful ride on our way to heaven. If you've never, ever trusted Christ, I'm telling you, that's the reason the book of Esther was written, for you to realize God is in every detail of your salvation story. All you need to do now is trust him because the whole of salvation has been provided if you'll simply receive him in faith. You say, isn't there something I have to do? Yeah, you have to trust him. You have to receive him. Is there some work I can do? No, no work is needed. Why? Because it's all been done on the cross. It's all been done by the Savior. You say, well, would I, could I do some work? You could, and it would mean nothing. Why? Because it's already paid. In fact, if you did something, that would just say to Jesus that what you did wasn't enough. It is enough. The righteous demands of a holy God are met. You trust him. Follow him in faith. Well, okay, so we're at chapter 10. I love chapter 10. Do you know why? because it's only three verses long. I might as well tell the truth. I'm in church. <laughs> Chapter 10. King Xerxes imposes this tribute. That's our word for tax. Don't you love that word? Got no amens out of that. Okay. So he imposes a tribute. 
By the way, this is just like Christmas. Guess what Caesar did at Christmas? He imposed a tribute, a tax, so all the world would be taxed. And where did Joseph have to go? To Bethlehem. And that was the fulfillment of a prophecy. Wow. God is in every detail. Every detail. So, Xerxes imposes a tax of the, of the empire to its distant shores. Trust me, he knows where people are. He knows how to collect that money. And all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai. So he's telling this great story of Mordecai now. Whom the kings promoted. Are they not written in the annals of the king of, of Media and Persia? He's saying, this is going to be written for no one to ever forget. I thought the book was called Esther. It is. Well, why is this story about Mordecai? Because he's a number two player. And that may be your spot in God's story as well. And so we remember Mordecai. Verse 3 now. Mordecai... The Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews. Get that. So he's first among the Jews. You're the bomb. You're the babe. See? He's preeminent among the Jews. He held high esteem by, by many fellow Jews because, get this, he worked for the good of his people. What a legacy. What a legacy. He spoke up for the welfare of all of the Jews. All of the Jews. Uh, this last week we celebrated the sanctity of life. We, we celebrate that every life is a gift from God. Every life. Every life. Every stage of life. Young, old, in between. Every ability of life. Uh, every intellectual standing. Every physical strength. Everything about life we believe is a gift from God. So we stand for it all. He goes down, and that's his legacy, because he works for the good of the people, and he spoke up for the welfare of all of the Jews. Um, I, I, I'm going to give you just some conclusions, and you can write some more on your own. One might be this. My ordinary days may be part of God's extraordinary moves. My ordinary days, they may not look like much. In fact, I may be at this point in my life where, where I, I, the office I work in, the complex I work in, we can't even say God's name. We can't even, I can say God, but I can't say Jesus. Then you be Jesus in that place. That may be where God has you in that spot. Maybe not forever either. Maybe for today and maybe for this year. Maybe you'll be done. I don't know. But when you're there, you be faithful to him even when you can't even use his name. Understand this, the book of Esther never uses the name of God Almighty. Not once. Never has the word Jesus. It alludes to prayer, but it actually talks about fasting. So even in light of your past, you may be saying, you don't understand my background. I'm telling you, you don't understand Esther's. Comes from a slave family, and now she's orphaned. You can have influence just like she did. You're saying to yourself right now, I cannot work. This is a godless environment. And Esther, the former slave, the outsider, is a reminder to you and me, my ordinary days may be part of God's extraordinary moves in my life. Number two, my overwhelming challenges may be designed by God. We sang it. He is intentional. We sing that song. We love that song. It's a great song. But... but I don't know if I like every situation God puts me in, you know? I'm not singing, oh, he's intentional. I'm singing, oh, get me out of here. 
right? <laughs> right? But you are made for this moment. You're saying the challenge is too much. Yes, it is. And why is that? So you'll see the overwhelming grace of God in your life to handle the challenge. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Your life experience may be leading up, and you may be saying, you don't understand all of the bad of my life. That all may be a lead up to something really, really good. God put Esther at the place of queen, not so she could get her hair and nails done, but so she could save the Jewish nation. Do you get this? Uh, the moment that may come for us, that may be our legacy moment. And you, like the judge, may not know what that moment was until it's over. Then you look back and go, oh my. You may be saying, I don't ask for this. I didn't ask for this. None of us do. Esther didn't ask for it. Mordecai, he just was like, Esther, keep your head down. Try not to be noticed. My overwhelming challenges may be God's design on my life. And why is that? So I will see his overwhelming grace and his strength to make a difference where he places me. Thirdly, I cannot lose sight of the ordinary influence I have. I cannot lose sight of the unordinary influence I may have. This will always be for the good of people and of Esther. I love that last verse, don't you? Talking about Mordecai. He worked for the good of the people. Ultimately, though, this is going to be for the glory of God. Here's what we want. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I'm not a mind reader. I know what you want. You just want your life to go well. You want all the lights going down 301. You want them all to be green, right? When you walk into Target or Macy's, wherever it goes, you want, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's all on sale. It's all on clearance, right? I mean, that's what we want. You can't believe what I paid for this. Yeah. Oh, that's nothing. Look what I paid for this. I mean, you, just, you want life to be good and easy, and that will not be the legacy. When you are laid to rest, and someday when I do your funeral, I will not say, she knew how to get a bargain. It just, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. <clears throat> okay, I'm done. I have one more story, but it's not my own. Um, and the story goes, here's the point of the story. The story is, you, I, I gave you the punch, here it is. Uh, we have wonderful opportunities in front of us. You do. So do I. Unfortunately, those opportunities are disguised as problems, right? As impossibilities. The story goes like this. Uh, in the, the great state of Alaska, a number of years ago, uh, land management had a problem with uh, animal control and the issue was the wolves were uh, breeding and were taking over the forest. They, they couldn't keep up and they were eating the, the land out of balance so the other wildlife couldn't survive. And so they decided they were gonna thin the crowds. They put the word out, uh, you can shoot the wolves. In fact, we're gonna pay you $5,000 for every wolf you shoot. Bill hears about it, calls up his buddy Jim and says, there's a bounty on wolves, and we love, they, they love to go hunting, and they love to go camping. So this is two things they love to do, so let's go. Let's go. 
So they load up the truck and uh, they get all their camping gear and uh, they head out into the woods. By the time they get there, it's dark. They set up camp, build a fire, have dinner, bunk down for the night, go to sleep. In the middle of the night, Bill wakes up to the noise of growling outside the tent. He pushes back the flap of the tent and he sees, uh, through the embers of the fire, he sees uh, steely eyes staring at him, but he, he sees teeth bearing too, and the tail's not wagging. But the good news is, this wolf is drooling. He's ready to have supper. But the really bad news about this whole thing is, there's not a wolf, he sees a set of eyes, two, three, four, five, six, so he thinks there might be 50 wolves outside. The growling is getting larger, the drooling continues, the snarls are happening. So Bill very carefully wakes up Jim. Jim, Jim, get up, Jim, get up. Jim gets up, he goes, what? He goes, we're rich. <laughs> okay? Some of your greatest opportunities that God will give to you will be masked as absolute impossibilities. Amen? Amen. Let's bow for prayer. You have designed us, oh God, not just to trust Jesus and then fly away uh, in a whisper to heaven, but you have given to us an opportunity to live an unordinary life for your glory. And like Esther's life, there'll be trauma and tragedy. There will be good days and bad and stuff that scares us skinny. And we tell you now, Lord, we wanna trust you, obey you. We wanna follow you in faith because we don't wanna live the blah life as we get ready for heaven. We want to live the art of the unordinary life, the supernatural life. So we walk with you in faith. We trust you. And perhaps for you right now, it's the downing in your own heart to realize I've never ever trusted Christ personally. I've heard about it all my life, or at least when I've been attending SBC, I've been hearing about it. And today you say, dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to be my savior. I trust him now. I wanna make him Lord, king of my life because he deserves it. I trust him. And Father, for what you do to work in our lives, to make us the difference makers in our communities, Lord, we give you the praise now and we will always give you the glory. We pray this in the name of Christ, our risen Savior, the church says, amen.